Well, you know, I have eight children. Most of y'all know that. And I have, okay, I'm going to have to count. I have nine nieces and nephews with one more on the way. And my first niece, my oldest niece, her name is Coleman. And she is just about a year younger than Justice, who is my son who's now 13. So Justice and Coleman have always had kind of an interesting relationship because for a long time, Justice was the only boy in the crew of all the grandkids for quite a while until Jairus was born. So for five years, Justice was it. He was the boy. Well, Coleman one year at my in-law's house had this beautiful box wrapped under the tree. She was about six, which means Justice was about seven. And she was so excited to see what was in this box for Mimi and Papa. And so we get through all the little gifts and the little candles for the moms and the this for the that. And we make the kids wait it out a little bit. And finally, it's Coleman's turn to get to unwrap this particular box. And she opens it. And did y'all have one? Of, did y'all have these? Your daughters have these? The Barbie makeup thing where you had the, the Barbie mannequin head and you did her makeup? She was so thrilled because, you know, it came with the jewelry and the eyelashes and she's opening it up and she's like, oh! and she pulls it out of the box and you have to undo 16 wires because heaven forbid somebody shoplift a Barbie head in their bag out of Toys R Us. And so they finally get all the wires undone. She finally gets it out and sets it up and she's like, oh! and Justice goes, you know how they make those, don't you? And Coleman said, no, how? And he said, they chopped the head off a of Barbie. There's a Barbie body out there somewhere. <laughs> Coleman was horrified, <laughs> took a little of the sparkle out of the day for her as she thought she was handling the Marie Antoinette edition of Barbie. <laughs> and I do not want to take Christmas and go, Whoosh! and y'all go, great, I now have a Barbie head and no Barbie body. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. We well, you know, I think sometimes when we don't know the story behind the story, when we find out the Barbie body story, <laughs> it can be a bit shocking to us. Did you guys notice when Da Vinci Code came out, how people were so, they really had their faith rocked because people didn't know the story of how we got the Bible. And so then they have an author who's writing fiction, but presenting parts of it as truth, make statements about where we got this Bible and how it came together. And I ended up teaching a series during that span of time and I was amazed the calls I was getting to go and speak to various groups people who were really rocked because they didn't know the story behind the story we well, you know we often say during this season Jesus is the reason for the season right well in actuality Jesus is the answer for the season Jesus is the answer for the season. I put a verse up here that I love. It says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I wanted to give you the JLC version, the Julie Lyles Carr version, which is, let us discern, weigh out, observe correctly our days, our events, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's what all of those Greek words mean, when it, or those Hebrew words mean excuse me, when it says teach us to number our days aright. It means to really look at the events surrounding us, to really be able to discern what's going on and to understand. Because the reality is, Christmas has some pretty serious pagan background to it. You know, it's funny, we get real upset about Halloween. Susan and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, you know, with our kids. Do we let them trick-or-treat? Do we not? What do we do? Ironically, Halloween is one of those holidays that actually has more of a Christian base than Easter and Christmas, I have to tell you. 
And so we do tend to get a little bit twitchy and nervous when we find that some of our favorite holidays, some of our favorite traditions, have a pagan base. But could it be that sparkles of divine truth glimmer in some of those dark stories? That's kind of been the whole premise of this subtitle, you know, finding glimmers of Christ in our customs and celebrations. I love the song that Pastor Randy sometimes sings to us, Everywhere I Go I See You. And I want to equip you this holiday season with those little symbols. I mean, look at all of these things surrounding the slide, okay? If I were to throw that out in the middle of July, your mind would immediately go, Christmas! We so understand that all of that little iconography is about Christmas. And I want to equip you when you see these symbols throughout the holidays to see the glimmer of Jesus behind it. I love Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. It's my contention that whether people lived in ancient Israel or not, because of the majesty of what the Lord has created, people were often searching for him and looking for him. That they often found glimmers of truth, they just sometimes didn't know what to do with it. Virtually every culture has some kind of mythology and legend and folklore that deals with the beginning of creation, that deals with the moral dilemma of man. When Paul gets over to Athens, he's absolutely amazed and is able to use what he finds with the Athenians. When he stands up and he says, I see that in every way you are very religious. This is in Acts 17. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So here are these men in Athens. And they've covered virtually every human quality you can think of in their mythology. They've got gods of lust and power and all kinds of stuff. But they still find it necessary to construct an idol to an unknown god. Because somewhere deep in their hearts, because God sets eternity in the hearts of men, they know there's got to be more. They know that their little soap opera legends just don't really meet the need of the human heart. And so the name of Christmas means the Mass of Christ. We actually got the name of Christmas pretty right. It was celebrated as the birth of the Christ child, the Mass for the Christ child. And you know, sometimes when you'll see people writing Xmas, and we'll say, see, that's just another sign we're taking the Christ out of Christmas. Actually not. That X is the Greek letter for Chi. And Chi is the first letter of Jesus' name. And when you see the Ixus, which is this little fish symbol, 
There's your Kai right there, okay? And in ancient times, if you didn't know if somebody was a Christian, you would take your foot and you'd make a swipe like this. And if they were a Christian, they'd make a swipe like that. And you would create the Kai symbol in the dirt and you would know that each of you were believers. It was like the secret handshake. And here's the Kai in the Greek alphabet. So when you see the word Xmas, don't feel like somebody's robbing your Christmas of Christ. It's actually an ancient nod, a reverential nod, to the name of Christ. However, people began celebrating the winter solstice eons and eons and eons ago, particularly up in Northern Europe, not just in Northern Europe. But you have to understand, Northern Europe, by the time you hit December 21st, it's pretty dang dark all day. <laughs> Your time with sunlight during the day is very much limited. And by the time you would hit the, hit the winter solstice, when the Earth on that side of the world is furthest from the sun, they were experiencing extremely long nights and very short days. And the best we can tell, it was in Scandinavia that the Norse first started celebrating this winter solstice with some type of official celebration. And they would bring in evergreen trees and evergreen logs to celebrate Yule because the evergreen was supposed to give them hope that spring would come once more, that the sun would resurrect, the resurrection of the sun. And they would burn this Yule log as a remembrance of the fiery sun for as long as possible. And according to Norse legend, there was a log that burned 12 days. It was like 12 days of Yule. Now in ancient Rome, it wasn't quite as cold, but they still like the, uh, the winter solstice themselves. And they would celebrate what was called Saturnalia, which I spelled incorrectly there. It's S-A-T-U-R-N-A-L-I-A. -A Saturnalia. And it was a month-long feast where they would celebrate the god Saturn, who was their god of harvest. And they would also do this fun little thing, it was so cute, where you let the slaves act like masters for a little bit. I'm sure that the slaves really went full bore with that, don't you think? Not fearing any kind of retribution whatsoever. I bet those were the kindest masters ever. Juvenalia, which is where we get our word juvenile, was also celebrated during this time. And it was a feast that was specifically for honoring children. When we say Christmas is all about children, this is the etymology of that. The Romans celebrated children during this time period. And amongst some of the wealthier households of Rome, and particularly amongst the soldiers and the aristocracy, who was particularly celebrated during this season of Saturnalia, was Mithra. He was called the god of the unconquerable sun, and his birthday was December 25th. And this is when he was celebrated. It's where we get the Latin word Dias Natalis Evicte, which was the god of the unconquerable sun, S-U-N. Now over in Iran, in Iraq, not to be left out, in ancient Mesopotamia, this is the area that Abraham came from. Zagmuk was the name of Christmas over there. And it was held in the period of the winter solstice until the new year. So about from December 21st until their change to the new year. And they believed this was the season when Marduk, their primary god, and you've read about him in your Bibles, he was the primary god of the Mesopotamians, they believed this is when he would do battle with the monsters of chaos. And the Persians and the Babylonians, not to be left out, would celebrate Sisea 
and that is when the slaves also would become masters. Similar celebration to what the Romans allowed for a wee bit of time. Slaves becoming masters. Now, in the early years of Christianity, Jesus' birth was actually not celebrated. As a matter of fact, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe we're supposed to celebrate birthdays because the only two birthdays mentioned in the Bible are Herod's and Pharaoh's. And they're like, see? They were terrible, and they celebrated their birthdays. I think the stream of logic's a little lost there, but that's okay. Seems to me like the shepherds and the wise men had something of a birthday party for Jesus, but not to split hairs. But in the early years of Christianity, it was not his birth that was celebrated. It was his resurrection at Easter that was celebrated. And not to just chop even more of the head off the Barbie, but probably Jesus was born in either April or September. And we're going to get into that, not next week, because we'll be at Karen's, but the next week we're going to talk about the historic period in which Jesus was born, that time frame, and what things tend to make us believe it may have been April or September. I have a pet favorite on that. You may have one that's different, but I'll show you the history on it. The first recorded celebration that we have of the Christ child's birth is in 98 AD. And it was celebrated in December at this Mithras celebration. By 137 AD, which would have been around 100 years after the resurrection of Christ, the Bishop of Rome orders that it be a solemn feast. Because remember, when they were celebrating Mithras and Saturnalia and Juvenalia, it was pretty much a big month-long, wild, wild, coyote, ugly party. So the Bishop of Rome says, you know, I'm glad that we're celebrating the Christ child birth, but we just need to take it down a notch. Let's make it a solemn festival. And by 350 AD, Julius I, who was then the Bishop of Rome, um, orders it to be celebrated concretely on December 21st. So within the first two, two and a half centuries of the church, the early church, the birth of Christ is being celebrated, which I really found fascinating. I didn't realize it went back that far in antiquity to that December 25th date. And by 1100 AD, okay, by about a thousand years later, it's a major Christian holiday. A great deal of the Roman church's masses and all of their traditions begin to surround that. How yeah. did they get from April to December? Well, the way they got from April to December is the Romans celebrated Mithras, who was a god of the unconquered sun, and it was one of the most major holidays they had. So as... As Christianity begins to burgeon as a major force in Rome, and particularly by the time we get to 350 and Constantine is in power and he's decided he's a Christian and on and on and on, that's when they latched onto that date. They basically claim back a date from paganism, which has great significance, and they attach Jesus to it. But you know, as much as uh, the Protestant faith did some good things for us, they were, they were a tight bunch. And they did not like, by the 1500s, they went, wait a minute, wait a minute. This thing's pagan. We're back to it being a pagan holiday. And Protestants said, you know what, we just don't think this should be celebrated anymore. We think this is wrong. We think it needs to be scaled way, way back. Which is what they did. As a matter of fact, I got really tickled since we've just studied the pilgrims. For a period of time in England, it was illegal to celebrate Christmas at all. And it was illegal in several of the English colonies in America. I'm like, wait a minute, so you're telling me I got on a boat, I came over to America, I wanted freedom of religion, and now I can't have Christmas. <laughs> but because of the Protestant Reformation and trying to squash the Roman church in that rending, 
they decide they're not going to hold Christmas. Then they decide, okay, you know what? We'll keep Christmas, but it has to be super, super solemn. And you could be fined in the state of Massachusetts in the 1600s if you were to decorate. I guess Martha Stewart would have been just wringing her hands. You were not allowed to decorate your home whatsoever. But as I said at the beginning, maybe Jesus wasn't the reason for this season, but he is the answer. Have you all ever studied the plagues in Egypt? I don't know that this will be novel to you, but for every plague that comes against the Egyptians, it's a direct response by the Lord to one of their major gods. So whether they had a God who you know, was God of the frogs, and God sends all these frogs as a plague, or a God who's supposed to be controlling the locust, and God sends locusts, or God's over the Nile, and God turns the Nile to blood, it's a direct response of the Lord saying, no, no, no. You may have all your little soap opera thing going on, but I'm the one in control. Well, as I studied this, what I began to see is that Jesus, and celebrating Jesus' birth at this time of winter solstice, becomes an answer for all these pagan faiths. This whole concept back in Scandinavia of the Yule log. You know, Jesus is the branch of Jesse. In Isaiah 4.2, We find that it says, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus is our Yule log. Jesus is the one who lights that fire of the Spirit within us. This whole concept of the master becoming slave. You know, we talked about the Romans would allow the slaves to be the master for the day, and the master would become the slave for the day. And we said that the Persians and the Babylonians did the same thing. It's Jesus himself who exemplifies this to his followers. And in Mark 10:44. If y'all want to turn there with me. Did McKenna get here okay? Okay. It says, And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life is a ransom for many. Jesus' answer for Saturnalia. Jesus' answer for Sasaia. Mithras this god of the unconquerable sun. The story says that he was born from stone. And when we look at Isaiah 28 and verse 16, who can tell me the imagery of Jesus there? Which is, so this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, the one who trusts will never be dismayed. Peter repeats this when he writes his book in 1 Peter 2.6. And in Ephesians 2.20. I know I'm making y'all turn pages a lot today. It says that we are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation 
of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone? The answer to Mithras. The God of the unconquerable Son, we serve the unconquerable Son, S-O-N. And then, those cute little Mesopotamians with their little Zagmook. Merry Zagmook, y'all! What is so gorgeous in the imagery for them and in Jesus as the response to their celebration. As you see, what was supposed to happen is their king was supposed to be sacrificed. And he would go to Marduk in the afterlife and he would help Marduk fight these monsters of chaos. And so what did the Roman soldiers do to Jesus? He is sacrificed, and before they sacrifice him, what the Mesopotamians would do, instead of killing their actual king, is they would go, uh, you, come here, you want to be king for a day? Super cool. You get to wear the robe, you get to wear the crown, and they would dress someone as the king. He would become the substitutionary king, and then he would be sacrificed to go join Marduk to fight the monsters of chaos. And so it says the soldiers in Mark 15, 16, and 17 led Jesus away into the palace that is called the Praetorium and called together the whole com company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they sacrificed him. And he went and fought the monsters of chaos for us. You know, there's a concept in theology called theophanies. And a theophany is when we think Jesus shows up in some kind of form. We say one of the primary theophanies is when he shows up and talks with Abraham. He has two angels with him. It's before these angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah to deliver the news to Lot that, um, you know, your little block in your little neighborhood here is going to get iced. <laughs> you need to get out. Well, prior to that, these two angels and a third person, whom theologians will say is a theophany of Jesus, meet with Abraham and tell him, Sarah's going to have a baby, thanks for the bread, it's been nice. And they say it's a theophany, an appearing of Jesus prior to his birth in Bethlehem. And I just have to wonder if sometimes in these pagan people, they had these little glimmers of theophany. They knew they needed a God, a Lord cut from stone. They knew that they needed a master who would be willing to come and serve. They knew they needed a substitutionary king who would be willing to go fight the monsters of chaos. And they just weren't quite sure how to get there. And they would throw these big celebrations for them. And they would try all of these little rituals. And they would try these sacrificial things. And the whole time, maybe, maybe, what they were seeing deep in their hearts were those glimmers. Because again, as we go back on the first pages of your notes to Romans 1.20, God has always continued to reveal himself to all peoples if they're willing to take notice. Now we have a few little symbols that we use that also have been called pagan symbols. One of them is the, oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, right? How lovely are your branches. Why do we start doing Christmas trees? What was that all about? Who went, I have a great idea. Let's drag something that's going to drop needles and be a major fire hazard into our houses every December. 
Well, what it was was back during Yule time with the Scandinavians, they would bring in these evergreen boughs, and they were symbols for hope of the rebirth, the resurrection of the sun. You know, everything else was dead, dried out, gone, not blooming but the evergreen still continued to bloom. I love this verse in Isaiah 55:13. It says, Instead of the thorn bush will grow a pine tree. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. When early Christians began using Christmas trees at this celebration of the Christ child, part of the tradition used to be, and I thought this was gorgeous, these were with the German settlers, and they would bring in the Christmas tree, they would let it dry out, after they celebrated the birth of the Christ child, and then they would cut it and make it a cross for Easter, which I thought was just beautiful. I thought it was just beautiful. So you're saying it started like as a, as a branch, and then somebody just kept one up? And, and Correct. Somebody just finally said, I'm bringing the whole tree in. I'm bringing the whole tree in. That's right. That's right. And you know what's funny that I found out? It's been real traditional in European homes to do like four-foot trees. It's Americans that went, we want floor-to-ceiling, baby. We got wall-to-wall carpet. We want floor-to-ceiling trees. Europeans have always done smaller trees. But it was. It did start with just boughs. They did have much smaller, teenier little houses. It did start with just boughs, and then they went to bringing in the full, the full Monty on that. <laughs> so, and it was the German Christians who really embraced this tradition originally. And they actually did some interesting things. You know the conical shape of a Christmas tree? That was to be the Trinity. And sometimes they would even build, they would construct almost like a triangle, and they would tack boughs to it. And then somebody went, I tell you what, let's just drag the whole thing in. The whole reason we put ornaments on a tree actually has a Christian basis. They began by hanging red apples on that tree. Do you know why it would be red apples? <laughs> Part of it, that's because what was available at the harvest. But you know how we've always seen through the years, people have rendered the forbidden fruit in Genesis as an apple, even if it probably wasn't an apple. But it was to remind them that while Jesus is the tree of life, we need to avoid the temptation. Okay, of the apple. That's where the Christmas ornament comes from. It was in about the 1830s as German settlers began coming to America that they brought this tradition of the Christmas tree. And as a matter of fact, Pennsylvania Germans, the Mennonite and Amish communities, originally were some of the ones who brought this in. And as early as 1747, we see record of a community tr Christmas tree coming in. But most Americans, until the 1830s, 1840s, really saw this as a pagan thing. They really felt like, look, that was part of that Norse Yuletide legend. We don't really want anything to do with this. But you gotta give you gotta give Queen Victoria some credit. Because over in England she was such a popular queen, and everything she did was seen as very vogue. And so she and her husband Albert were pictured in um, a little periodical called the Illustrated London News. This was their version of People magazine. And they were shown with their darling children. This is the actual sketch from that periodical. And once Queen Victoria was shown with a Christmas tree, magic, presto, it was no longer a pagan symbol and was absolutely an important symbol for celebration of a Christian holiday. So by the 1890s, it was a very accepted symbol of the season. Very accepted symbol. Now in the U.S., uh, Christmas trees have been sold commercially since about 1850. In 1979, the national tree was not lit except for the star on top in honor of the American hostages in Iran. I didn't remember that till I read it again. 
Frank, that was in 1979 when the American hostages were in Iran, and the only thing that was lit on the national tree at the White House was the star in honor of them. Franklin Pierce, who was the 14th president, began the White House Christmas tree, and it was Calvin Coolidge who did the national lighting ceremony in 1929. And it was protégés of Thomas Edison who worked with him in his lab who went, we should put electric lights on those trees. <laughs> now, legend has, I think this is probably legend more than anything, that Martin Luther, the great reformist, was the one who came up with the idea. Remember, he was German, so the Germans were doing Christmas trees already. And he was the one who came up with the idea as he walked home one night contemplating a sermon he was going to teach. And he saw the starlight through the boughs of evergreens as he walked home that it was his idea to put candles on the tree as an illustration for a sermon about the majesty of God's creation. That may be apocryphal, it may be true, but Martin Luther is the one who's credited with that. You know, another thing that we see a lot of is mistletoe. Mistletoe. And this is another one of those where Jesus is the answer for the season. It was the Druids who loved mistletoe. And mistletoe was seen as a symbol of peace and joy. It's said that when enemies would meet in the forest, if there was mistletoe hanging from a tree, that they were required to put down their arms and declare peace for 24 hours. So mistletoe was seen as a, a peacemaking instrument if you happen to walk under it in the forest. The legend of the mistletoe comes from an ancient Celtic story about a goddess of love named Frigga. Bless her heart, her mother must not have loved her. <laughs> and Frigga <laughs> has a son named Balder. And oh, once again, Balder is the god of the sun. Hmm. Frigga receives news that there is a hit out on Balder. Somebody wants to take him out. And so she makes a deal with the elements of earth. Okay, so nothing from dirt can kill him, nothing from water can kill him, nothing from fire can kill him. What do we've got? Earth, water, fire, wind. Nothing from the wind can kill him. All the elements make an agreement. You got it. We won't do it. But mistletoe doesn't grow on the ground. It simply is a parasite, basically, and lives off of trees. It doesn't need the sun, it doesn't need water, it doesn't need earth, and it doesn't have any fire. And so this other evil, jealous god talks his blind brother, you know how these soap operas go, talks his blind brother god, who's the god of arrows, into loading up an arrow with mistletoe on it, and lucky shot, hits Balder. And Balder is killed. He lays slain for three days. And Frigga's tears, and a balm made of mistletoe, made of peace and joy, resurrects him. Again, a resurrection story for a god of sun. And so the very name mistletoe means heal all. So it killed him and resurrected him? And you know what I thought of is that the cross was the very means of Jesus' death and it's the very means by which we're raised. Which may get a little too esoteric, but, <laughs> but the very means by which death is brought is life rendered. I realize you don't have to agree with that. <laughs> it's a little out there. And I thought this was amazing. Twelve days of Christmas. Where do we get the twelve days of Christmas thing? You know, we, uh, the Catholic Church went on and grabbed it and said, okay, we're going to call this from the birth of the Christ child to Epiphany. We're going to call it from this day in December until the 5th of January, however you want to render it. But really, it does come from that old Scandinavian practice of the Yule log and that one amazing Yule log with extra charcoal on it that burned twelve days. 
uh, that's where 12 days comes from. But I did think this was really fascinating. During the Reformation, when the Catholic Church was being very suppressed and the children were not allowed to recite catechism and they weren't allowed to practice uh, some of the Christ Mass that they always had, there are those historians who believe that the 12 days of Christmas, that little lyric and metaphor, was a mnemonic for Catholic children to learn the catechism of their faith. Now, there are historians who do not believe that's where it came from. I want to be fair with that. I don't think the song, the actual melody, came till later. But when you start looking for what are the images behind these objects, what is all that about, I found that this really could make a lot of sense if this is indeed where it came from. My true love, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me is God. Me, I'm the Christian, and the partridge in the pear tree is Jesus. Two turtle doves, the Old and New Testament, three French hens, faith, hope, and love. Four calling birds, the four gospels, five golden rings, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, six geese laying, the six days of creation, seven swans a-swimming, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, eight maids a-milking, the eight beatitudes, nine ladies dancing, the nine fruits of the Spirit, ten lords a-leaping, the ten commandments, eleven pipers piping, not peers, my, my apologies, eleven pipers piping, the eleven faithful disciples, and the twelve drummers drumming, the twelve points of the Apostles' Creed. And that through this, these children were able to learn the major tenets of their faith in a time of oppression. And so the little take-home box I want you to take with you today in your mind is this. While Jesus may not have been the reason originally for the season, he is the answer for the season. He is the answer for what men have been searching for through their mythology and their celebrations and their festivals and their feasts and their sacrifices for all these years. And God in his faithful way, by allowing us to celebrate his birth at this time of year, which is not even really probably the time of his birth, resolves and wipes away so many of these faulty belief systems simply by allowing us to hold the Christ Mass. Would you guys pray with me real quick? Father, we know that when we walk deeper with you, we open up difficult questions sometimes. We learn things about our rituals and our more surface belief systems that get challenged. And yet, Father, you are so faithful to always show us glimmers of you. Even in the darkest corners of paganism, even in the darkest corners of man's belief and man's attempts at self-salvation, when we peer into your word and we, when we peer into the application you make into our lives, we always see you. Fathers, we're gathered around Christmas trees that had their start from Scandinavian Yule and when we look at that date on the calendar of December 25th and we know it was from a cult of Mithras, thank you that your son who has been willing to be our substitutionary, that he wipes out the previous meanings of days and seasons and events and lays over the kingdom agenda you have for us, which is one of love and grace. 
May we carry that message in this season to the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.